Greetings of the day, everyone. I'm privileged to welcome you all into the third edition of Orange City Literature Festival, organized by SGR Knowledge Foundation in association with GH Rajasthan University, powered by Rajasthan Group of Institutions. I'm Amaj Angde, delighted to be your anchor for today's session on labor migration to Arab Gulf by Rajuman Kotapan sir, in conversation with Advocate Rucha Pandey. Rajuman Kotapan sir is an independent journalist and a migrant rights defender. He was chief reporter for the Times of Oman until he was deported back to India in 2017 for exposing human trafficking and modern slavery in the Arab world. Through front page news story, Rajman Sir now writes for the Thomas Reuters Foundation, TRF, Equal Times, Migrant Rights, Middle East Eye, The Hindu, Times of India, The Kawa, Wire, The Leaflet, and various other Indian news portals. He has done two media fellowships, one with the International Labour Organisation (ILO) on labour organisation. on each with TRF and National Foundation of India NFI on forced labor and gulf migration respectively so is also a researcher for the migrant forum in asia and has worked as a consultant for IIT ILO and International Trade Union Confederation ITUC in 2019 he authored an anthology rowing between rooftops the heroic fishermen of kerala floods telling the stories of heroic fishermen who rescued thousands from the 2018 kerala floods Rajman sir belongs to the Panan Dalit community of Kerala. Historically, Panans were ballad singers who narrated the acts of the then great warriors and kings. He wishes to continue this storytelling legacy through his books and writing. It's an honor to have you with us, Mr. Rajman Kottappan sir, and this gets even more delightful as we have Advocate Rucha Pandey, who will be in conversation with him as the moderator. Rucha Pandey is a practicing advocate at Supreme Court of India. she has worked as an activist and advocate with human rights and law defenders pune she started practicing law at bombay high court nagpur bench since 2016 she graduated from the hijutala national law university raipur she earned a ba llb honors degree in the year 2015 completing the honors program in constitutional law and trade international trade law i once again welcome you sir and i welcome you ma'am Now, my dear audience, you are about to experience a conversation between two very dynamic individuals. So, without skipping a moment, I humbly invite Advocate Ucha Pandey to lead us ahead. Ma'am, please. Hello. So, Amir, that was indeed a wonderful introduction, and it's sheer privilege that I'm here and I'm going to converse with Regimon Sir. Uh, so, when I read about Regimon Sir and his work and everything, I was really startled. I mean, the expanse of his work and the exemplary effect—not just somebody who is researching, who is who is uh, going around talking to people, but or let's say an who is an encyclopedia of data—but Regimon Sir is actually somebody who has worked on the field. So here we are going to talk to somebody who has been there. So now I think let's hear it from the horse's mouth. if that's uh, that's i think the best way to describe him uh, so when uh, you know all of us who read we know that when sometimes when we read an article or a book uh, it it feels sometimes that the author is actually talking to us so that's that that shows the involvement of the author or how much he has worked on it so i got that kind of an experience while i was reading what regimon sir has written so let me first start by talking about his book uh, rowing between the rooftops now rowing between the rooftops is a wonderful book that is highly recommended for everybody now 2018 saw a terrible catastrophic floods in kerala and this is when all the kerala fishermen they jumped in 
and they saved their folks. They, uh, the thousands of people and uh, property and uh, animals were saved because of the heroic efforts of these fishermen. They literally brought out their boats and uh, they saved people. And uh, Rajivon sir has documented this. He has spoken to him. And the interaction I'm sure he had while doing this was uh, a superb. So one should read his book for that. Now coming to today's topic, um, that is, uh, as we all know, labor uh, migration to Arab Gulf which is Rajimon sir's expert topic and he has been through it. He has seen it all from the very close quarter. So now let's talk to him about that. And uh, to begin with, I'll start uh, by uh, quoting the title of his book, Undocumented Stories of Indian Migrants in the Arab that he has written very beautifully. And there are so many gut-wrenching stories in that. So now let's talk to uh, sir about that. Now, before we begin, I'll just like to give a little um, a brief introduction about what this entire crisis is. So as we all know that around 23 million migrants are there in the Arab countries and out of that 9 million are from India. So 90 lakhs, that's a huge population. And um, these are not just uh, people who are migrating from one country to another country for work. These are real people with real rights, privileges and duties and uh, protection that not just their own country should give them, but also the country that is going that they are going to that must give these people so they should feel protected the, uh, but unfortunately so as we can see we saw in our country when the covid pandemic broke out that uh, these privileges were kind of seen to be snatched away from these people do they even have it was a question that popped us popped in most of our heads so uh, what about people who leave their country for work uh, do they even feel the protective cover or let me uh, ask that do they even have the protective cover is the question and um, Regimon sir, as we all know, is an expert in that. So now let's hear it from the man himself and the person who has been on the field throughout. So Regimon sir, uh, please take us through all these, uh, the stories, the interactions, the experiences you have had by writing this book and all that uh, you can share with us, sir. Yeah. La, uh, thank you, Amy, and thank you, Rucha. And let's stop that I'm Raji. I'm, people call me Raji. It's not Rajimon Sar and all. So let's be more casual. Uh, thanks for this wonderful opportunity. Uh, yeah, like any other care light, I also migrated to Gulf. So it happened uh, because in Kerala, the unemployment is too high and to get a job is very quite uh, difficult. So we always look at getting opportunities in the Arab Gulf countries where the petrodollars are there. And uh, you know, every fifth house in Kerala, there would be a migrant worker. Migrant worker in the sense who is, who's, who somebody will be there in Arab Gulf or Europe or America. We don't migrate to Southeast Asia and all. That was before 1950s and all. We used to move to Java, Burma, uh, Japan, uh, those kind. But uh, after the oil was found in 1960s and all, uh, our destination became the Gulf countries. And a few educated nurses and engineers migrated to Germany, Europe, America, and all. So, as I said, every fifth house there is a migrant. I also migrated after uh, getting a job here in Indian Express. When my senior wanted me to join him while he was migrating and he told me that you are going to get a huge salary so you can join me. So to learn some more experiences and to see new places I migrated. And when I reached there, I had to learn a lot, relearn a lot and understand a lot. Till then I didn't know that uh, uh, there are Indian migrants who are being exploited, abused 
uh, and they are working under harsh conditions like slaves. I didn't know that. Never I have heard of that kind of stories also. That's why my book is titled Undocumented. These stories are not documented anywhere. These stories are not told anywhere. And that's why I have written in the book that these are unheard and untold stories because we always hear about the success stories only that too in glossy magazines, all the big Indian rich uh, businessmen who have minted money, who are in the Forbes list, who are in the rich list and all, who are made success. But out of the 90 lakh Indians in the Arab Gulf country plus the Jordan and Lebanon, I can confirm that more than 80 lakh are blue collar workers or workers who are paid below 30,000 or 35,000 per month. So these kind of workers face a different kind of challenge because in the Arab Gulf countries, still since the 1960, they follow a different kind of uh, employer-employee system called kafala. Uh, it's not written anywhere. It's not a rule. It's not a law. And it's not a Sharia thing also. And it's not a Sharia thing also because uh, the Arab trade unions, there are only two trade unions in two countries, that's in Bahrain and Oman. There are only two trade unions. And these trade union people also tell me that this is a thing which we have to get rid of from our country, the Kafala, where it spoils the relationship between the employee and employer. And it keeps the worker, the migrant workers bonded labor. You don't have the right to associate, right, right to associate you don't have the freedom of expression. You don't have your you, movement of restriction gets uh, movement of uh, your freedom of movement get restricted. Basically, you are tied up to the worker, and these kind of workers, when they are tied up to the employee, then it's a big challenge. Any kind of emergency back home, you don't get a leave to go home. Any kind of difficulty you have at workplace, that don't get resolved. Any kind of uh, violations happen, you don't have a right to question it. Whatever the employer says, you have to obey it. And definitely, uh, you it. I, I was surprised to know that majority of the big businesses done by done in the Gulf country are run by Indian management and Indian businessmen. And these are the Indian businessmen and the successful people who recruit Indian migrants to the Gulf countries, and they themselves exploit their brothers and sisters. And they, them, it's not the, I won't blame the Arab countries. It's we who are teaching them how to exploit our own brothers and sisters. So I wanted to tell their stories. I tried my maximum to tell with a limited freedom of expression, which is available in the monarchy countries like Gulf countries. But I couldn't tell all the stories. And between, I migrated in 2006 last and I was deported in 2017, April for exposing human trafficking. But I saved a few stories. Returning back India, I started to uh, started to what? Started to think about the story. Start writing the stories and all. And finally, this November 15, it has come out as a book. Uh, uh, my stories, I won't say that uh, these are the greatest stories. I won't say because these are the people whom I met who were in a bad situation. But I still know that there are more people who are in a worse situation. Yesterday, I came to know that there are 900 Indian workers in a company stranded for 20 months without pay, proper food, proper shelter. And they are still stranded. And day before yesterday, I got a case from Oman saying that there is a person who is undocumented for the last 32 years 
and the Indian Embassy and the Oman government is struggling to make a paper to repatriate it back home. So think about I, I told a story about a person who was stranded for 22 years. Definitely this person uh, who is stranded for 32 years in a foreign country would have a very worse bad story to say than the other guy. So these are not the greatest stories, but nobody even have told these stories also. Everybody talks about only success. Everybody talks about only uh, relations, brotherhood, uh, mutual understanding, those kind of things. But nobody tells any real stories. There we won't be able to do it because the freedom of expression is very limited and the media freedom is very limited. So we won't be able to do that. So that's why I thought of writing this book and tell the people that yes, boss, there is a different kind of life in labor migration happening in the Arab Gulf, especially in the Arab Gulf because the exploitative kafala system is going on there. Sir, so while, uh, while you were on this journey of writing this book, what other stories or of any other special experiences or interactions you've had? Uh, could you please share us? Uh, so share some with us yeah uh, this book tells about uh, eight people's stories so it all starts from 1960 a person who went to migrated to girl on an illegal though from Diu, which was a persian though and he was at the age of 14 when he migrated to dubai and he didn't reach dubai he reached muscat and from there in on a jeep he went to dubai and he built the dubai creek and all at that time in 1960s there was no dubai and it was not possible to move around Dubai to Al Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi to Sharjah. These are all were different, different countries. And later on, they joined together like Indian states become an Indian Republic. These UAE Emirates become an UAE Emirate later. And from there, the story moves to uh, labor migrant. This guy also was a labor migrant. And again, it moves to a labor migrant who got stranded for 22 years. Then it moves to another guy who didn't have enough valid documents to come back in a regular way from Oman to India. So he took the help of Pakistani and Bangladeshi traffickers to cross the uh, Oman UAE border mountains, which is a very risky thing. And if you get caught, you get shot dead. So he crossed there and he appeared himself. He put himself in the front of the embassy saying that I, go, I came to UAE and I got stranded. I don't know where my employer is, so I want to go back to India. And at that time, there was an amnesty going on. Amnesty is a system, is a sort of program announced every two years or three years by an Arab country, uh, allowing the overstaying labor migrants to leave that country without paying a fine, without paying an overstaying fine. Uh, when I say overstaying fine, you should understand if you overstay for one year, the fine would be 1.2 lakh or 1.3 lakh something. So the story moves to that guy, his experiences, and then it moves to uh, another character called uh, Sushmida, who was trafficked from Bihar to UAE, and then from trafficked from there to Oman, and she was confined in a mansion, and she was sexually abused and all, and I rescued her, and uh, I knew the route, what it was happening and all, so I rescued her. Then it moves on to another story, uh, a mother and a child uh, who... who who was a child and she couldn't prove that he's Indian. Indian embassy also didn't, uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't manage to prove that that boy is an Indian because uh, she was undocumented when she delivered the baby. And the baby was now six years old and the baby was an uh, undocumented baby. 
and for the mother the indian embassy was okay that we can talk to the district collector in india and get a certificate that she is an indian but how could i prove that this boy is an indian so i told the uh, official that uh, the boy speaks malayalam he all of a sudden he replied that uh, even pakistani speak malayalam and that's a true thing also because malayalam is the most common language in the gulf arab speak pakistani speak yeah, all the north indians also speak malayalam in gulf countries because we are large in numbers then we run the tea shops we run the shopping malls we run the offices we run the taxis and everything so that's the thing and then the um, uh, then the story comes to covid end and everything all these stories i'm talking about undocumented people who either by descent or by fate get undocumented and they struggle to uh, struggle for their life and when they want to come back also they won't be able to come back if they won't if they can't prove that they are indian in this the most uh, uh, most troublesome and the most risky one was rescuing rescuing sushmita from that mansion because she as a, you, you should understand that a domestic worker she won't get access to phone and you don't get access to go out always and you will be always in the kitchen and you should you may have to work for some 14 hours or something every day and uh, the and so and there won't be any wi-fi even the house will switch off the wi-fi if she is using a phone so how could she communicate to me one day what did what she did is that she was sexually abused many times at that house so one day she always peeps through a window on the second floor of the house and she can see that at certain time a person is passing through an alley there so what she did is that she wrote her number in malayalam that i have to be rescued and she wrote her number and threw it down this boy took that number he didn't do anything he took it and he didn't stare even at her because he knows that that is very risky next day he handed over the paper to a supermarket uh, salesman who knew me who called me and told that we have got a number and this is the location so what can we do i talked to the embassy embassy then told that okay raji embassies cannot directly intervene into thus get into this kind of a rescue operations all because it's all it will become a protocol violation so usually we do that on behalf of embassy and when after a week, in a week i started to talk to her when she was available to talk and she will be able to talk to me only 3 am in the morning when these house people will go for prayers to the mosque and all she will be able to switch on the wi-fi and she will be able to talk to me and that too for 10 minutes or something that's it and at that time i should be awake and finally we fixed the day and we went there early morning three o'clock she told me that when she comes out to put the garbage uh, in the garbage bin uh, she will get into my car my and my son my friend went there but she didn't come and it took an at around 10 o'clock early morning and not in the morning 10 o'clock seven hours we had to roam in that city 10 o'clock she came and we picked her while coming back i was picked by the police because i have a in in the arab countries you cannot uh, you cannot have a a uh, lady who is not a relative or an, your office colleague in your car so i was picked up by the police then the embassy intervened and all i was released and she was also taken to the embassy and all. and and that trip was very much risky and we have done a lot like the like that many rescues have been done
So now, sir, these were these heroic stories where the experiences you have had. Now we want to know when in 2017 you yourself were accosted, you were deported. We want to know about that. How how you handled all of that? How? Yeah. Say so since 2014, the oil price started to rise, uh, uh, slide, and uh, it came down to ten dollar per barrel and all. So. All the Arab countries were in a lot of pressure, economy pressure and all, and they started to sell the sovereign wealth fund and all. Whenever there is a crisis in Arab Gulf country, the first casualty will be the migrant workers, the laborers, the low-level workers, or the mid-level workers. The top-level workers never will lose their job. They will be safe. Even they will not be sent off. Their, their salaries will be cut down by 20%, 30%. But first they will do is that they'll fire the, the workers. They'll fire the blue-collar workers because the projects get halted. There is no work. There is no road, road building. There is no building work happening. No construction, no gardening, nothing. So... You just you don't want to keep them so you will fire them but what happened is that when the oil crisis happened and when the economy fell down the workers were laid off but they were not paid properly their end of service benefits were not paid and uh, and their pending wages were not paid and they were left in lurch in the camps and i have done a lot of stories like thousand workers stranded in a camp they are depending on what uh, you get the waste meat from the butchery shop you get the waste meat they buy those waste meat and just put some turmeric powder and salt and cook it and eat just to be alive just to be alive i reported those kind of big stories in a camp i, I went there i saw this and i was very much uh, i was very much worried and agitated about so when i started to do that kind of stories it, those stories got debated in the parliament because in the arab country nobody does any uh, migrant worker stories so these stories were front page stories so those stories were debated in the parliament and some positive policy changes were happening. But these big stories brought me under the radar of the Oman government. So I was under the radar. And then uh, after that, the trafficking issues, I used to be into the rescue operations. I used to attend the Indian embassy open houses. I used to listen to the rescued domestic worker stories. Uh, and they, sometimes they want to, they don't want to be rescued. Sometimes they need only some dress or money or food or something. That's what they need. I used to arrange that. So these interactions prompted me to map the route of trafficking because the people, the rescued women by coming back to the embassy, she would tell me how she came, how she, who was the agent, where she was sold and all. So finally I decided that let me route map the trafficking. So I went to the Oman UAE border where the manpower supply agents will sell the girls, sell the girls without the knowledge of Indian embassy or any other Asian embassies. And according to them, everything is very clear because to UAE, you can buy any woman can get a visa. She can go there. And if it is a visit visa, it is just for 45 days. After 45th day, they don't mind whether you are going to Oman or back to India. They won't ask. By the time the agent will give her a job visa for this domestic worker there in the UAE, she will show this UAE Oman job visa and she will, by road, she will come to Oman and she will be kept in the manpower supply agent. And if I am an Arab and I am eligible for a domestic worker visa and I will get the visa from the Oman government, I will give the visa to the manpower supply agent. So everything is legal. But what is illegal is that without the knowledge of Indian embassy, an Indian woman is being uh, trafficked to UAE, brought into Oman and without any proper legal uh, documents or something like that, without the uh, what, what job contract or anything like that, she is being uh, put into a domestic uh, put into a house as a domestic worker 
So I wanted to root map it. I did a sting operation, and the story got published in 2016 October. And uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, when I did that uh, uh, sting operation, most of the uh, domestic workers were Sri Lankan domestic workers, and there were only a few Indian domestic workers. The Sri Lankan government was very much uh, uh, unhappy seeing the story. They directly called me and asked me, uh, "Hey, Raji, what is happening?" So I said, "This is uh, what happening." So they said, "We will talk to the Oman government." This, this is not supposed to have happened there. So they talked to the Oman government. So on a story, a foreign country is calling Oman government and talking to them and asking them what is happening on the ground. So this uh, was an unhappy uh, turnout for the Oman government. So and we had a follow-up story also. The Oman Sri Lankan government uh, wrote a letter uh, and they wanted to cancel all the MOUs or something like that and all. And uh, we did a follow-up. They told me that you are a migrant rights activist, you are a human rights activist, you are not a journalist, we don't want you to be here. You be, and I had a Ministry of Information accreditation card, I was an accredited journalist. Out of the 100 journalists, there, there were only 8 journalists who had the accreditation card and I was one among them. But still, that didn't save my job. And within 15 days, I had to be, I had to leave the country. I, my children were studying there, my wife was with me, I had to pull out from the, pull out them from the school. And empty-handed, I came back <laughs> without any job or anything. I came back. So this is what that. <laughs> now, sir, uh, this is uh, you have seen really uh, that must have been in a very terrible time. But sir, uh, when I read your story about uh, rescuing the, the when Iran fishermen fishermen in Iran was stuck due to COVID pandemic, so many Indian fishermen. So, what is the story about that? Your yeah, that was during, yeah, that was during COVID. It happened. I got a call from the Catholic Bishop Church where the bishop uh, resides. I got a call from a sister. They all are connected to me because all kind of sort of a rescue mission, grievance at a redressal mission. I know a few ambassadors. I know the way how to operate it. I know whom to talk. I know how to uh, prepare an application. So, people called me. They called me and told that. And this was the first case uh for me in 2020 covid first case it was the end of february i think so 27th february 2020 they called me late night 10 o'clock and told me that we heard that some indian fishermen are stranded in the iranian coast uh it is in bandara pass uh, uh and along the iranian so coast many fishermen were, uh, stuck there right yeah many, the many fishermen many fishermen there were 700 fishermen but first we came first we came to know that only 60 fishermen and the 60 fishermen were from Kerala. They were from the southern tip of Kerala. They called the bishop of somehow. And because the church has a good uh, rapport with the fisherman community here, like anywhere else. So they called and they told them. And I got only 60 fishermen. And late night, uh, one o'clock early morning, they called me. I told the church to give my number, let me talk to them. I didn't think that it was a serious issue. And nobody thought that COVID is going to be a big issue also. Everybody heard about a Wuhan case, then an Iran case, and Iran didn't close down its borders also. Iran didn't close down its borders also. It was very in a pre-stage when the COVID was spreading then. But these fishermen were worried because they were worried because if the, they wanted to leave Iran before Iran closes its border and before India and other countries stops its air operations. They wanted that, but it didn't happen. Next, early morning, one o'clock, they called me. They said, we are not getting food from the city, from Tehran. Our employer is not coming. He's not sending any money. We are stranded here. We don't have any Wi-Fi. We don't have any phone call, nothing. And we are in the boat. I asked them how many. We know 60. I said, prepare a list. Check with your friends and all. 
and the next day morning they came out with a list of 300 and they told me that we are we don't have food for the last four three days then i wrote a story i got it published in a small uh, website called the lead in chennai and uh, luckily sashi darur saw that story he retweeted the story and they emailed him a request also saying that these guys are uh, starving them so he had his friend javed sarif the foreign minister of iran uh, was a colleague with him in un so he wrote to javed sarif and javed sarif contacted the indian embassy and indian embassy uh, uh, stepped in and they started to supply food and everything but this happened in february you should think that this happened in february and these poor guys came back only in june end when two indian ships were sent uh, from here to send uh, bring them back and by that time there were 700 people 720 fishermen who boarded that ship and came back and i prepared that 720 my and myself and my my friend mini mohan we both talked to them and collected them and made the excel sheet and i coordinated it with the minister b mugridan he even also was calling me at that time and all and we coordinated and everything during the, uh, through the charge through the minister through sasitaru everybody got into this issue and finally those 720 fishermen came back and they came to my home and all with all dried fish and all with a big packet of dried fish and all and nowadays whenever there are marriages happening there they will call me and i I'm myself and my wife go there and i have a good name among them also because i wrote a book about them also long back in 2019 so they know my name and so now they always say that you should come and stand in election year <laughs> I'm going to talk about the book. I'm going to make you talk about the book because that's a highly intriguing book. And I'm sure there are several experiences you've had with these uh, fishermen uh, after the floods. Yeah. Now, there's yeah. uh, one um, uh, important thing that I really want to talk when it comes to Arab migration first. Um, now, when, 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 when these people will come back, like it, we saw it in COVID, so the repatriation will happen. What should the Indian government do? What should these people do? And what yeah, do you yeah. think as a scholar that needs to yeah. be done? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a very burning issue because, see, uh, uh, such kind of crisis happen on and off. In 2018 also, there was a real estate crisis happened in Dubai when many people lost their job. 2014, oil crisis happened. And after six years, exactly after six years, that is 2020, we had COVID also. So people will return and that key, it keeps on changing. The, the the trend keeps on changing. Sometimes if it is job loss in uh, Gulf, sometimes it's job loss in Southeast Asia or somewhere else. You know, the H1B visa, those kind of things and all happen. Why I talk about the Gulf countries because the, these are semi-skilled job seekers and those who work there and not. Labor migrants, large numbers going. So that is why. Uh, a migrant coming back from India, America, uh, I won't be much worried about him because uh, he's a skilled migrant. He can come back and he can find a job here also. But about a labor migrant who has gone to Gulf, he would have worked there for 10 years and he migrates at the age of 20 and he, might, he works there for 10 years or 15 years. And he comes back empty-handed when there is a crisis and all, giving up his end-of-service benefit and pending salary. He is at the age of 35. Where is the job here back in India? At the age of 35, would you get a job? There are fresh people, fresh students out from the college to ready to work for 10,000 rupees. Ready to work for 10,000 rupees per month or below that also. You know how the gig economy is picking up. It's just only because unemployment is very high. People are moving into gig economy like delivery boys and also. Basically, we are still managing. It is a shame to tell that we are still managing migration with the Immigration Act, which was enacted in 1983. 
you should remember that 90 lakh Indians are working in Gulf countries and we are getting 80 billion US dollars as remittance. We are the largest migrant sending country and the largest remittance receiving country. When I say 80 billion US dollar, it is 6.67 lakh crore, which is two and a half times higher than the FDI, which a uh, prime minister's office and other business guys bring in through FDI, through the BRIC meeting, G20 meeting, G10 meeting and all. They bring in the FDI. Two times higher than the FDI, the remittance is coming up without any effort because these are all monthly wage earners who are remitting the money through the Western Union and through the banks and all. And this money is circulating here and it uh, it builds this Indian economy. But unfortunately, we are still managing uh, the migration with the 1983 Immigration Act. So we have to have a new Migration Act, adapting the new changes and trends and everything happening. In that new Migration Act or in making a setting of a migration policy, we should also think about reintegration. We should be prepared when something happens. Okay, I will tell you the reintegration part an example. Uh, uh, in Philippines, when this COVID crisis happened in the Gulf country, when the Filipino migrant workers were returning, the Philippine government strictly told the private sector that reserve the jobs for the migrants who are coming back. In Nepal, what they did, you know, they, in the Nepal, the government employment employment list, they said that give preference to the migrants who have come back from the Gulf losing job. Give them the job first. Let them get the job first. Later on, we will give them. Uh, in Bangladesh, you know, when the migrants who returned from COVID from uh, during COVID from the Gulf, where upon the arrival in the airport, they were given 5,000 taka, the Bangladeshi rupee, in hand, and they are being provided uh, 2.5 lakh taka as loan to set up any small-scale industry or whatever it is. What did India government do? India government just picked the stranded migrant workers from the Gulf and that too for picking they took 13,000 Indian rupees per ticket. When we talk about the fishermen who came back, you know, I had to find money for the fishermen who didn't have money to buy the ticket to sail on an Indian Navy ship. How shame it is. I'm an Indian citizen, an Indian Navy ship is coming to rescue me and I have to pay them in dollars to get on board that ship. I had to raise money for a few fishermen. I had to talk to a few good friends in the Gulf and they started to remit money to the stranded fishermen. And with that money, they paid aboard the Indian Navy ship ticket and they came back home. So, and when uh, while returning, we don't have any, any proper reintegration plan. We don't have any loan schemes. We don't give any, any of the preferences. And uh, at the age of 45, when you return, I'm 43. I came back when I was 40. At the age of 40, do you get a job in India? You won't get a job in India. And so, um, and see, yeah, and even though, see, even when coming back, you can give a training program to upgrade the skill and help them to, to re-migrate. That also is not happening. But again, so Kerala, is, Kerala is spearheading this by having the non-resident Kerala welfare fund. That welfare is the, act. see. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's indeed I, very great. Yeah, indeed very great. But what I feel is that, with 2.21 lakh crore remittance getting state Kerala, which is some 30% of what total India remittance gets, and through which we have benefited a lot since the beginning of 1980s, all the education, health status, literacy, everything was through the Gulf money which came in here. So we have we are not supposed to just stuck with this uh, Norca. We are supposed to move ahead, far ahead. We are stuck somewhere here. When it comes to the programs implemented on the ground, we are failing. 
we are failing. Norca has a good pre-departure program and all, but that is not reaching out to people. Still, there are airlines who get duped by the agents after paying 1.5 lakh and all. So, 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 so that's what I say. This in this book also, I'm talking about these kind of things and all. What are the pitfalls of migration? How do we fail? And what can the Indian government, Kerala government can, can do? And during COVID and all, how the workers struggle? Through the struggle, I am exposing the uh, shortfalls of the government. See, during COVID, the migrant worker was helped by individual, not the institution. Institutions had to step in. They didn't do that. Even in internal migrants also. See, somebody was sending them food. Somebody was buying them flight ticket. Somebody was buying them air train ticket. But the institution in a old, they failed. They, they were sleeping. They woke up late. So that's what I'm telling in my last chapter also. Empty return, all return empty handed. I took data. I took uh, RTI data and everything. In that, I'm saying that how the institutions failed. And that I'm telling through the um, struggles of the real life people. So to sum up, uh, in India, basically, domestically, we want to have this very sharp and strong regulatory framework. So also on the international circuit, we have to be that strong because India, I'm sure, is failing on that part. Kindly, uh, if you can throw some light on that. Yeah, on the on the migration level, uh, see, as I said, the largest migrant sending country, largest migrant. Nepal and Bangladesh have done for their own nations. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, they have done a lot, but we when we compare to them and when we when we see them what they're doing, I feel ashamed. Even my neighbor, small country, uh, Himalayan country, they have done a great job uh, having a migration policy. And Dhaka, Bangladesh, everybody sees them still as a third world country, but they have moved far ahead than India. And uh, then, uh, then Sri Lanka also, Sri Lanka, Philippines, uh, they all are recognizing the importance of labor migrants, what they can do to their Indian, their own economy, home economy, and their uh, contribution at all. But in India, I feel that we are not focusing more on the labor migrants. And for the namesake, we hold this Pravasi Bharati Divas. In Kerala, we have a replica of the same called the Loga Kerala Sabha and all, where uh, all the money has been thrown away, the government money has been thrown away, where only a little uh, welfare measures are being discussed uh, for the namesake. And uh, in the global meetings and all, definitely diplomats and experts are coming and uh, they are talking and I see them also. Uh, but uh, we are still in 1983. That's still in that 1993 Immigration Act. And after 1993, we have not signed any global tools or anything. So again, we are falling short on that global conventions. And though protection that conventions would give us, we are falling short on that. Recently also, we signed a GCM, Global Compact for Migration, and we signed it. But it's not a legally bound document. So, uh, so it's not going to help us. It's not going to help us. So uh, see, uh, we uh, we should the government of india should open its eyes and see that see our people are going out because we are not able to give them proper jobs here maybe it's poverty unemployment climate crisis or political tensions i even know a migrant who migrated from up due to political tensions due to political crisis so many driving forces are there for indians to migrate uh, I met a I met a shepherd, Indian shepherd, uh, in Kuwait Iraq border. Uh, he's from Poonch area, 
is from Poonch area. I asked him, why did you migrate from Poonch area to desert? He said, sir, uh, if I have, if I am there, I should either be an informer for army or be a supporter of terrorist or the rebel. Kashmir, typical. What it is, uh, five years, ten years, I'll be shot dead by either one of them. So we lost our one of our brother like that. So my mother wanted to leave that city, leave that country. So I thought that I'll get a good job in a, as a domestic worker in Kuwait. But in Kuwait, uh, Indian domestic work, Indian shepherd visa is banned. Indian shepherd visa is banned. So what happened is that they uh, they recruit us as a domestic worker, and the next day when we land there, they will put it in the uh, put us in a desert somewhere. And there, you know, even if we fall sick, the employer will come only on Friday with some medicine. We only get dal, rice, one table fan, and hundred sheep. That's it. So that's also these kind of driving forces are there in India for labor migrants. We should think seriously about it. We should have a proactive role. We should have a humanitarian attitude to the labor migrants. Yes. So I'm sure the book, the, the light that you've thrown uh, on so many aspects right now and also through your book, I'm sure that is definitely going to benefit. And I'm sure after this talk today, uh, I myself, I feel that there's a lot of awareness and there's a lot of inquisitiveness now. There are so many fields in which I as a lawyer practicing at the Supreme Court, I need to see, understand and work on. So I hope this talk today, after this talk, all of us are in a way not only aware, but also try to emulate things as much as we can. Um, and uh, be more empathetic. That's very, very yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to sum up, sir, due to paucity of time, I wish time was, we had more time, <laughs> but uh, now as we have to sum up, I want you to throw light on um, this new book that you are writing um, for all of us. Uh, so kindly uh, throw some light. Yeah, uh, I, I did my first book that was in 2009. That was about the heroic fisherman who rescued some 60,000 uh, people stranded in the 2018 flood uh, on 600 boats and Indian uh, Indian government could rescue only with army, navy and all, they could rescue only 8,000 people. And these people faced different kind of challenges. There was even casteism in an area where the Brahmins were there, the fishermen who went on the boat were Muslim and Christians. And the Brahmins who were stranded on the second floor of the house, they were not ready to board on this boat because they felt that it, would, uh, it might be a bad thing for them. And uh, many interesting stories, many bad stories were there. And then this book, this was there in my mind for six years and I couldn't get time. And then uh, 2020 during COVID, while attending all these cases of, uh, I, I was able to bring back 1,400 people during COVID from Gulf countries. And I was able to support 340 people with the airfares which was sponsored by my friends who are rich people there in the Gulf. It's not needed to be big rich because to sponsor 10 tickets, it's one like 30,000. And the money, the businessmen there, they earn is very big. So it's not a, for my goodwill, they have supported. And that book was written in six months. And now I'm working on a third book. Um, uh, that's about uh, uh, a sister affair who was found dead in a well 28 years ago. She was a Roman Catholic. Uh, uh, she belonged to a, a sect of Roman Catholic and uh, she was a nun and she was very young and she was found dead in a well. And uh, there was a petty thief, local thief uh, there in that area who witnessed, who is the 
PW3, and uh, he didn't change his stand even after being tortured. Uh, yeah, even even after even after uh, being tortured in the police station for 62 days continuously, jail for two and a half years, and in between, in between CBI crime branch, everybody would pick him up and beat him up, and to just to confess that he did it, he did it, but he didn't. And finally, in the court, he said that no, I saw that two people, the two uh, priests, and that nun. Uh, with this uh, uh, in that circumstances that's what he said and that was proved in the court and the court was convinced and uh, so he's still alive this guy is 62 years old he can't walk properly because he was tortured like that by the policeman and all and he's a very small literate uh, what he's a he's a uh, he walks in the market he's a uh, uh, trolley puller or something like that you know he walks in a market and once in a while he was doing theft and all that was long back when he was young and all and so the story is about him. Through him, I wanted to tell the Abaya murder case and all. That would indeed be very thrilling and uh, uh, very different for me as a lawyer also to read and I'm sure for everybody. So, sir, thank you so much. It was a highly enlightening talk and it was really good talking to you. It was sheer privilege. So I really thank Orange City Literary Festival as well as um, Amaya for conducting this. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, at the outset, I would like to thank Mr. Rajimon Khattapansar and Advocate Rucha Pandey for joining us today. We wish to get to hear you both again and be equally enlightened as we all are today. And for my dear massive audience, I'm sure that after witnessing this conversation, you all are taking home an enriched version of yourselves, just as I will. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Until I see you again, this is Amaj Ande signing off. Thank you. Thank you. Done. Yeah. Beyond.